0: Kierkegaard famously said in a quote I've used as this book's epigraph that life can only be understood backwards, but has to be lived forward. However, fiction, this is one of its consolations, imagines for us a stopping point from which life can be seen as intelligible, the complete quiet or necessary resting place that allows for understanding the angle of retrospect, which is the storyteller's premise. A story is already over before we hear it. That is how the teller knows what it means.
1: From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Alterescue, and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. If you're listening on Anchor, feel free to leave me a message on Anchor's new voice message feature. I'm in West Shokan in the Catskills today to talk with Sophie McManus. Sophie has a master's degree in fiction writing and has been teaching writing at Sarah Lawrence College. Sophie is the author of the critically acclaimed novel The Unfortunates, critically acclaimed certainly by the critics I read in The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Washington Post, but by others as well. The Unfortunates is a Barnes & Noble 2015 Great Writers Discovery Award finalist, was long for the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Prize and shortlisted for the Center for Fiction's First Novel Prize. Sophie's work has appeared in American Short Fiction, O, Tin House, The Washington Post, and elsewhere. Sophie is a recipient of fellowships from the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, the Sultanstall Foundation, and the Gentel Foundation in the great state of Wyoming, a lovely, lovely place. I gather that you also teach at the Sarah Lawrence MFA program. Welcome to the podcast, Sophie.
0: Thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
1: It's a beautiful day and I'm glad you're here. When we spoke in advance of the podcast, you suggested that we have a broad conversation about fiction, using a great little book, The Art of Time in Fiction, by Joan Silber, as a jumping-off point. Silber also teaches at Sarah Lawrence, but I gather you've never met her.
0: I've never met her.
1: Her loss. <laughs> Maybe we'll get her on at some point. You described The Art of Time in Fiction as a brilliant book about how time works in fiction and suggested that it could be a vehicle for us to have a broad conversation on that subject. You also suggested that we might talk about what fiction can do that is unique in the arts, in part because of its relationship to time. All fascinating topics. I can't read every book I discuss with my guests on the podcast, but I made a point to read this one, and it was very interesting. I think I learned a lot from it. In her book, Sober discusses 30 novels and describes several ways in which time is used in these works of fiction. I hadn't previously, at least consciously, thought about the alternative ways in which time is used to tell a story, but I do now. I'm not quite the student of fiction that you are, but I'm open to <laughs> learn from your observations. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you take away, what you took away from Silber's book, and maybe have examples of the way in which time is used in storytelling, including how you've used time and how you use time in your own writing.
0: Sure. Um, well, the first thing I want to say about time and fiction is that I think writers often don't make a conscious choices at first when we're in draft um, about how we're going to use time when in fact time is the most essential fundamental part of how we tell story. And I think she uses this great phrase, um, the angle of retrospect. Can I read just a little, no, please a little do. paragraph? Absolutely. I, I won't read too long, but um, uh, I just love this book so much. She writes, um, Kierkegaard famously said in a quote I've used as this book's epigraph that life can only be understood backwards but has to be lived forward. However, fiction, this is one of its consolations, imagines for us a stopping point from which life can be seen as intelligible. The complete quiet, or necessary resting place that allows for understanding the angle of retrospect, which is the storyteller's premise. A story is already over before we hear it. That is how the teller knows what it means. Um, so it's interesting that that um, time is so fundamental, and I and as readers we hardly notice it, which I think you just yeah said, right 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 uh, unless the author is really doing something very overt with time, like telling a story backwards or. Um, or pointing to time as, as its subject. Um, and I think that's in part because we, we're so ready to swim in the story. We're yes. so ready to accept the logic of, of the universe that's being presented to us. And that's, um, that's part of like the, the lovely contract between the writer and the reader is the, the invisibility and the, and the artifice uh, there. But, um, so I found when I was a young writer starting out, I never thought about time in my own writing and came to this book fairly late. I came to this book, uh, once I started teaching and, um, and, and just learned so much from it.
1: So I mentioned the book to a friend, uh, who is who is a new writer and she had read it. She loved it. She yeah. said, now that you mention it, I'm going to read it again. Yes. And I can see reading again. I'm 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 jealous of the 30 books that Silber appears to know inside and out, uh. Uh, which is uh, phenomenal. But uh, it, it's interesting also the the quote you chose to read is one that I had noted as well. Um, you know, story is over already over before we hear it. That's how the teller knows what it means. And then I said, that the only question is how the story is told. Yes. And and what you said about ends. Stories have ends.
0: Yes, life
1: life's might, life might goes on go on after, and the best books are when a story ends and you think about what happens after.
0: Yes, um, yes, and writers are often, um, well, I shouldn't say this out loud, but I think the really <laughs> good writers don't know their ending until they are well into the into the book. Um, I think usually, uh, one has to write blind to to get to um to meaning to figure out what the meaning of the work is um and and that it's usually a writer who really wants to control the experience and the prose who will start out with a perfect idea of what a what a book is um and and then won't discover the the thing along the way so um so the time is always being um worked out through the writing process in a way that is really Fantastic. And Are you saying fascinating.
1: That, that a good writer knows the end or doesn't know the end?
0: Doesn't know the end. Doesn't know the and, end. Until, you know, at a certain point, you need yeah. to know what's going on. But um, but if a writer starts out with a perfectly complete picture of um, of what's going on, then usually the imaginative process is closed.
1: A, a good distinction between fiction and nonfiction.
0: Yes, that's a great about, point. Yeah. yeah.
1: You, you, you read a biography of George Washington, you know how it ends. Mm-hmm. Now, you you can de- <laughs> you can decide where you end your story about mm-hmm. George Washington. Yeah. But you do know where it ends. Yes. Yeah, that's fascinating.
0: Um yes, Silver Silver just for the sake of um talking about time um breaks us into a couple different types of time in fiction, although she she's very careful to say this is not a definitive or, or only way to do it, but she talks about um, books in, in classic time and books in long time and slowed time and switchback time um, and fabulous time. I think that's all of them. Yeah, th- those are yeah. all of
1: them. And, and uh, I, I made notes in the book, as I mentioned to you, I, I rarely write in books anymore. Uh, what I do is I, I take notes electronically as I read a book even if I'm reading a book hardcover. Um, but I, I I wrote in this book, and I wrote a number, I wrote down the names of a number of books as I read, just examples. And, and these may not be books uh, you know necessarily, but On Long Time, where she talked about, uh, even in a story that leaps over long spans of time, there's the intimacy of the close game. Mm, and I love that. Yes telling telling the details of a story, even if the story goes over a long period of time. And I've got a friend, uh, Jill Block, who wrote a book called The Truth About Parallel Lines. And Jill's a, a relatively new author. And this book is about complicated relationships played out over 30 years.
0: Oh, fascinating. Uh,
1: lots of twists and t- turns. Some resonated loudly with me. Mm-hmm. This is not <laughs> the profile at all of a book I would usually read, but um, Jill wrote it, so I read it. Mm-hmm. And I found myself caring for the characters, or at least some of them.
0: Mm.
1: Um, and it thoroughly enjoyed the book, which surprised me, uh, but it... it Probably because of the intimacy of the close game, to use Silber's words.
0: Yes. It, it feels paradoxical. It feels like if you're reading a book that takes place over many, many years, that it wouldn't feel close, that it would feel panoramic. But in fact, you get this, um, or you can get a really intimate picture of a person because you are following them, you're chronicling them from um, from youth to old age or... Uh, or through a great spectrum of different relationships, um, David Copperfield is a book that I yeah. adore in this in this category. Um, I think that one of the things that's so um, delicious and poignant about books uh, like that is that you you see how people change and how they don't change, and you can see how um, how that can have grave consequences or happy consequences. Um, you can see the world changing around a person who can't change, or you can see a person changing in a world that is static, um, in a, in a way that gives us some of those great ironies. I think she talks about, um, Flaubert in this chapter. Um, there's a horrible description of a, of a parrot. I mean, wonderful, (laughs) horrible. Um, it's so short, I'm going to read it. Um, and I can't believe I just found it. Um, let's see. What page Uh, is that on? I am on page 27. Okay. Oh, yes. So Silber Silber writes, "Um, no reader ever forgets the description of the last days of Felicity's stuffed stuffed parrot, the once glorious Lulu. And then this is the Flaubert. "Um, Although the parrot was not a corpse, the worms were eating him up. One of his wings was broken, and the stuffing was coming out of his stomach. But she was blind by now. And she kissed him on the forehead and pressed him against her cheek, um, and so this this is this, just a horrific example of how a vast shift in time and also in the state of the person um, is shown to us in this one this one object. It's really it's and, really and, fantastic. And this
1: is a book. I think she says that uh, took place over decades. Yes. And and what a vivid, <laughs> unfortunate. Uh, description of this parrot yes yeah so um so so, and that's in her chapter on long time yes so another uh or an example that i found or i thought of in in long time um she talks about this may not be long time but she talks about uh stories stuffed with time and characters
0: Mm, yes
1: and um over uh, christmas holidays i read a book called the luminaries Mm-hmm. Uh, which had 20 major characters. Oh my it was over 800 pages. And she was, the, the author, uh, Eleanor Caton, was good enough to have a uh, glossary at the beginning <laughs> describing who, they were, who the characters were, so I could refer back. But some of them, you, you, just as I said with Jill Block's book, you really had um, an affinity with, mm-hmm. you really cared about. And again, with an 800-plus page book and 20 major characters, I thought that was a great achievement.
0: Yes, there is a kind of um, uh, authority at, at, to a book, I think, that has heft both in terms of characters and, and page numbers that really, um, in a way, the author is making a demand on you, the reader, uh, to accept that this is an entire society, this is an entire yes. world, um, and that it's important to pay attention to that to that world. And I think you can do that in, in long time, especially. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, that, that, was, that was exciting. Yeah. And, and uh, let's see, so we talked about long time, classic time. So on classic time, she used, and I think you mentioned, Great Gatsby uh, as an example of classic time.
0: Yes.
1: Uh, a span short enough to be seen easily seen as a unity, often delineated by a natural border, a month, a season, a year. And of course, The Great Gatsby was a single summer, although there, things took place before, before the story. Yes. So maybe there's a little bit of switchback in there as well.
0: Um, yes. In some ways, so classic time, if you pick up um, a 19th century realist novel, you'll probably be in classic time. Um, the story starts on one day and it ends on another day. Um, and, and it is usually delineated by a year or a season or some kind of, um, some kind of logic that is connected to the time logic of the world that we ourselves live in. Um, but in some ways I feel like classic time is the most manipulative, uh, because it is hiding its art. Uh, we feel like we are in just a traditional span of time, but like all, Writing, however you use time, there's an incredible amount of um omission. We do not write every moment a character is yeah. in um uh decision making about perspective uh about um what will be emphasized and so in a way, it's a sleight of hand that says here is here's a plain bit of reality um and of course it is not it is not at all.
1: The author chooses what's important to communicate what's yes. important for the story yes, yeah.
0: Um, and I think when, when Silber talks about Gatsby, she, um, she talks about how the heat is so important in this book. The fact that it is summer is really significant from scene to scene in different ways. There's, um, there's this beautiful scene where, um, Daisy and her friend are sort of floating in a hot breeze. Um, and, um, and one thing about time and fiction is that time is in fact connected to things like the sun rising and setting and the weather and and the passage of the seasons and um i think especially if we work in offices and because we all live on screens yeah now it's it's easy to forget that what you see out the window is totally related to the time span of a book and the time span of our lives and the the great books um don't forget this the great books, I think, um, include the character's environment as a, as a part of the significance of the story,
1: and somehow. That, and that goes for nonfiction as well, of course.
0: Yes, you yes. Know,
1: I've, I've got on the desk here uh, the new biography of Churchill, and I'm loving it for many reasons, but including the placing him in time in the late 1800s and early 1900s uh and and that that time what was going on at that time was most important i'm also reading biographies of uh, or multi-volume biography of well, lyndon yes, johnson a lot of reading. Yeah. it is of lyndon johnson <laughs> and there is as much about the times uh in which he lived as there is about johnson yes
0: yes and that's and, essential yeah
1: so that is essential then on, on slowed time, uh, she refers to a very short piece of action examined very, very slowly. I have not, re- not read Proust, read about Proust, but yes. she, she uses him as an example.
0: Yes. Um, something has happened in the movies that has almost ruined this for us, but, um, but has not completely, which is um, we are all now totally habituated to the scene where um, a car crashes And then the camera is slowed and we, uh, we watch our characters, um, you know, in some bodily duress, depending on the (laughs) the film. Um, and, um, it's connected a little bit to the, that trope of, um, uh, someone's life flashing before their eyes, right? Where suddenly we pack a ton into, uh, a minute, uh, in a, in a reading experience or a few seconds if it's a, if it's a film, but, um... But slow time on the page is, is I think, still very exciting uh, because uh, when you really concentrate uh, just on one small thing that's happening or one moment of a dramatic thing that's happening, say, uh, you end up um, swimming around in the consciousness of the character in an incredibly granular, detailed way. And so slow time ends up feeling like it's about externalities, right? Like a character is looking at something um, uh, in great detail, but it actually reveals more about the character um, than other modes. So we're, we're in their consciousness in a, in a way that goes very deep. And, um, and I think also reminds us of how um, easily deranged time can be, right? That we feel like we are on a, a clock and we live in a logical universe, but as soon as the character is um, sick or um, in some kind of, um, you know, mentally um, stressed out state, or um, or has somehow in a you know in a dream, say right, uh, time no longer holds. So so we end up um, in mind time. Which is mm-hmm. totally different and not beholden to, um, to the real time of of the rest of the book or to a traditionally realist book. Um,
1: so, so uh, what you were saying, uh, sounded again like the intimacy of the close game. Yes. Yes. Um, and so that's used in long time to, to tell the story, mm-hmm. to to uh, create a relationship for yeah. the reader. And in slowed time, you know, that, that, that's the essence of the slowed time uh, telling. The book uh, I noted when I was reading that chapter was uh, Ian McEwen's Saturday. I don't know if you've read ah, that.
0: Ah, I did. A long time ago I read that.
1: So, me too. So, yes. So I, so I, I look back, I looked back to, to refresh my memory. And so it took, I remembered, it took place over a day, mm-hmm. a Saturday. It yeah. actually ended at 5 in the morning on Sunday. But it took place over a day. And it was, uh, as one uh, critic said, a careful dissection of daily life. Yes. It was the daily life of this gentleman in London going about his day. He was a neurosurgeon. And interestingly, McEwen spent time with neurosurgeons to understand the character's worldview. Mm -hmm. So it was his, 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 his work as a surgeon, his worldview as a surgeon, as a family man. And it it was a wonderful book. Somebody recently asked for a book recommendation, and I read Saturday many years ago. It was published in in 2005, uh, and I said, read Saturday.
0: Yes. Another recommendation I would add to that um, in, the, in the slow time category would be A Box Full of Matches by Nicholson Baker, um, which almost takes us to um, poetry, although I'm sure Baker would tell me i'm wrong in saying that but um but if i remember right in that book uh the our main character wakes up every morning and lights a match and then just tells us everything he does after that um you know down to what the coffee grinds look like as he's putting them in the in the coffee maker and every chapter is a morning or a day and we only get a few minutes in every day even though it's pages and pages and it's um does not sound riveting, and it's totally riveting.
1: Um, <laughs> well, that's the magic. Yes. It does not sound riveting.
0: Yes. Um, but that reminds me also that slow time, I think, um, is a place where the, the language can also really um, become, uh, become lyric, become um, the, first, the first thing um, that we're thinking about when we're reading and, and writing, too.
1: Well, you said it's like poetry. Yes. So Nick Lyons, who I mentioned to you, uh, who I interviewed on the podcast or talked with on the podcast, when I referred to his books, uh, I said uh, they're they're po it's poetry. You write poetry, and he said, "Thank you very much. I intended to be a poet,"
0: uh-huh. which was you wonderful. said the right uh, thing. I said the right thing. <laughs> Good.
1: <laughs> and then then there's this fabulous time, um, yes, which I wasn't sure I understood, but uh, I I loved the quote from. A Hundred Years of Solitude. Now, that's uh, my wife Carol's favorite book, I think. Ah, um, she's got good taste. Uh, I couldn't get into it. <laughs> but I, I, I'm going to say I'll try again. Somebody hold me to that. <laughs> um, and But there's, there's a, a quote that uh, Silber says that um, uh, authors, many authors can recite uh, by heart. It's the first line of the book. And it goes, many years later, this first line of the book, it starts with many years later. Yes. As he faced the firing squad, squad Colonel Oriano Ar- Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. Amazing. The first sentence contains the past, the present, and the future.
0: Yes. It, it begins with the feeling of a last sentence. And yeah. then it ends with the feeling of a first sentence. It's all. It's it's like it's eating its own tail. It's. It's, um, <laughs>
1: it's a better way to put it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, I, you know, fabulous time. I think, it, it is such a big category that it's harder to talk about. Yes. yes
1: um, yes.
0: because we could talk about um sci-fi. We could talk about fantasy. We could talk about, um, any any kind of magical realism where the, um, the writing is no longer beholden to the laws of. Um, physics or time or space or so um she talks in this chapter a lot about circularity and folklore which um which is pretty interesting and I think I think what one of the things she's getting at in this chapter is that because um fabulous time um is not like an arrow classic time is sort of an arrow shot from point a to point b um because we don't have to operate in time, um, story can go any which way. So story can circle back on itself, story can be layered. Um, one version of a story um, can start out as the true direction we're going and then suddenly we've, we've turned and gone somewhere else. And so um, so I think, you know, one of the challenge, challenges for, for writers working in fabulous time is how to know how to make choices because every single choice, um, infinitely, is a, is available to them. Um, so, I I think it's connected to myth in a way that's deeper, yeah. and goes back further than the you know certainly the tradition of the, the novel, which is a pretty young, um, specimen when you when you think about it. Well, compared um, to myth, yeah. Yes, um, yeah.
1: So, so the book I noted. And, and I didn't do this artificially. I just as I was reading, I, things came to my mind. Uh, Pete Hamill's book, Forever.
0: Oh, I've not read that.
1: So um, that's another one I refer people to. So this is a story that begins in 1740 when an Irishman, Cormac O'Connor, comes to New York. And I can't remember what he did, but he, he helped someone, an, an African shaman, uh, who had come to american chains a black man and he's given a gift as long as he never leaves the island of manhattan he mm. will live he will live forever
0: uh-huh. and so it starts <laughs> <Nightmare>. in 1740
1: <laughs> it starts in a <laughs> nightmare <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so, says a recent transplant to the casco <laughs> yes. uh so it starts in 1740 it ends after the tragedy of september 11 2001 mm mm-hmm. And it's written by Pete Hamill, who I love, who's a classic New Yorker, steeped in New York. So this is Mm -hmm. the history of New York City, the history of Manhattan, Ah. and, of course, the history of the country during all those years. Mm -hmm. And I loved it. Yeah. And I've given it to people who say, what can I read about New York? Yeah. And, of course, part of this is fiction. (laughs) Part of it's Mm nonfiction. But it's uh, it's uh, in fabulous time, certainly.
0: That's, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. That's reminding me of a book I read over thirty years ago. So, um, uh, I might not remember it too well, but uh, "Winter's Tale" by Mark Halpern.
1: Mark Halpern, I um, read uh, the the ant proof something by Mark. Yes, Pink, yeah.
0: and it's a great um, it's a great New York City story that really um, it grounds us in the history of New York City in a way that feels like there was a lot of research and it's factual and then it takes a total left turn and we're in the realm of of, of fantasy.
1: And what was that called?
0: Um Winter's Tale. Winter's Tale. Yes. And
1: the one I, I read Memoir from Ant Proof Case by my Yes, Cooper.
0: yes. That sounds familiar.
1: Also not an arrow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. So um, so that was fabulous time. Um and uh I I I I read Fiction and nonfiction. Uh I always say when I read fiction, I'm taking away from not, time from not reading nonfiction. Yes. But, <laughs> but. Uh, it... So, so the unfortunates. Uh, how does that fit in all of this?
0: Well, um, I think I wrote that in as classic, a classic time mode as you, as one can. Um, which was not a conscious choice. Um, uh, it starts in a summer and it ends in a summer with a with a tiny tip into fall at the end. Um, and in fact, the um, the book is cut up into sections that are um, uh, by season. So um, sounds classic. It sounds classic, and I I think um, I made that uh, choice without fully making it because as a as a new writer. Um, I was very happy to give myself the um, the realist constraints that would then allow me to figure out how to write uh, within them. So, um, yeah, yeah, but uh, it's a very plotty book. It's got a very complicated plot with a lot of um, moving parts that all affect each other. So I've got um, uh, a sickness that's progressing, a pregnancy that's progressing, an, an opera that's being staged through. Through production, a a, disastrous opera. A disastrous yeah. opera. There's um there's financial crimes that end up with some indictments. So we I have all these kind of schedules that are beholden to, um, to some sort of reality that we well, that we live t- in. To time. Yes, right, to yeah. time. Um. So I. So I think I gave myself a very definitive goalposts. Um, and I was not modeling it on the Great Gatsby, but I'm I'm sure I read that enough times that seeing <laughs> how he, he worked. A story into a season was probably
1: a very good, a good model. And the new book you're, you're writing also, you think that'll be classic, Time? Hmm. Too soon to tell? I don't know
0: yet. <laughs> I don't know yet. Uh, but I can say, um, I, I can talk about one part of the book I'm working on now that, um, that has to do with time, which is um, my first book, The Unfortunates, um, was in third person. So most novels will either be in third person or first person. Occasionally, you have these second person novels, um, but it's hard to pull off. So, um, so this book is in first person, uh, and it's a it's a retrospective narrator, which is a a kind of a narrator that I adore, and have always wanted to write in. And um, and so you have the person who is telling the story, and they are uh, looking back and explaining something about. Um, their life before and it could be you know five minutes before it could be yeah. uh, 40 years before and so you have this really wonderful layering of two different versions of the same person and there's a kind of simultaneity in the narration that happens so um, uh, an example that many people have probably read is is Lolita we have Humbert Humbert is trying to convince us and a jury um, that we should feel pity and compassion for him, that his love with Lolita is uh, was valid and true. So um, the tone of that book has a kind of, um, m- well, we forget about it as we read because it's so lyrically beautiful, but there's a kind of a desperation and a plea um, in that time space between the two eyes, between the Humbert Humbert who's um, kidnapped uh, Lolita and the Humbert Humbert who's talking to us, you know. Um, there's another, there's a short story I love. It is my favorite short story of all time. Maybe it's called My First Fee by Isaac Babel. My First Fee. Um, and it's a very old narrator, um, talking about, uh, the time that his young self, um, uh, lost his virginity to a prostitute and sold his first story, which is in this story, (laughs) one in the same act. Um, and... I've given this story to so many students, and they all hate it, and I love it. But, um, but the gap between those two eyes, unlike Humbert Humbert, say, is um, is lovingly ironic. the The older narrator is showing us what a sweet fool his young self was. Um, so, so when you work in the first person. Um, with these two versions of the same person, you have this wonderful kind of gap of time that usually makes for some sort of ironic gap um, and sometimes makes for great dramatic irony um, too. So so that's a, that's a way that time works, I think only when you're in first person. So that's something I'm figuring out how to do oh, for myself right now.
1: So when you were talking about retrospective narration um I, I went back to where we started a story is already already over before we hear it but mm-hmm. but there are really two stories yes the stories telling and the, and the two eyes as you said yes yeah, which which, <laughs> which is a challenge and good for you yes
0: and the and the critical thing um <laughs> well the critical thing about the past in any fiction um when it comes up is that the past uh, must not be a footnote to the to the present of the story. The past has to somehow impact or change, um, or affect um, the story in a way that's totally essential by the by the very end. A
1: lot goes into writing a book. Yes, it's quite a challenge. It's really fun. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, let me ask you a uh, last question about uh, how you consume literature and and from where. So, do you read uh, physical books? Ebooks, audiobooks, what do you do?
0: I just read physical books. Yeah. I um I will put on an audiobook and I will immediately stop paying attention. Um, which bums me out. Seems like a great way to consume literature. Uh and I and I just can't read on the the screen. I'm writing on the screen all day, so yeah, yeah, I yeah. so I like to take yeah, uh, you know, yeah. something physical and, and and smell the pages and
1: favorite bookstores? New York, Catskills?
0: Oh, so many um three lives in new york three comes live. to live. lives lives yeah. yes where's um, um, where's is that that is in the village yeah. in the west village um community bookstore in brooklyn uh, uh green light bookstore in brooklyn fantastic um here i've been going to rough draft books in kingston which is a new bookstore um they're very clever it's called rough draft because they also have beer
1: Yes, on yes tap. I, I read about um, that, yeah. and it's um, like it's,
0: that. it's a great big space, and um, they have a lot of events, and it's a really wonderful um, community hub. It's great. That's great.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. This has been fascinating. The book was fascinating. Your description and your discussion is even more fascinating. Oh, so thank, thank you very much.
0: Delightful. That was great. Thanks a lot.
1: More information about our guest today can be found on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com. Our website also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, my bookmark, and other merch to come. Let me know if you'd like a bookmark sent to you. Melanie, as always, is in control of most everything, even on maternity leave, and has provided overall creative direction. Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support, and, of course, Carol is my muse. Jake is growing and is a patient listener when I read to him. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of my guests. Thanks also to the great anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments, either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time.